The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. The, the thinking is pretty simple. Like, well, what's the fastest way to get to normal school flora? How about let's put in a, a inoculum of normal school flora and see if it takes off. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to Annals on Call. This episode features an article from the Annals of Internal Medicine titled Incidents of Bloodstream Infections, Length of Hospital Stay, and Survival in Patients with Recurrent Clostridioides Difficile Infection Treated with Fecal Microbiota Transplantation or Antibiotics, a Prospective Cohort Study. This article was published November 5th, 2019. Joining us on this podcast is Dr. Dimitri Draconia. Dr. Draconia is the Chief of Infectious Disease at the Minneapolis VA Healthcare System and Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Minnesota. He does VA-conducted clinical trials, uh, including a trial on the fecal microbiota transplantation for the prevention of recurrent C. difficile infection. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Dimitri, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I hope you found this uh, article on fecal microbiota transplant as interesting as I did. Could you start by giving us the rationale behind this approach to C. diff? Sure. You know, C. diff is something that everyone in healthcare is aware of, and those of us who see people with a recurrent episode really understand why it's so vexing. And, you know, the CDC just put it on its top tier of urgent threat categories because it's not really that it's that hard to treat. It's just that once people start having recurrent episodes, they seem to get in this cycle where if you have one episode, you know, if you're treated appropriately, you have a roughly 20%, 25% chance of having recurrence which is another episode, variably defined, but usually within a a few months afterwards. Once you have that first recurrence, your risk of a second recurrence goes up to nearly 50%. And after you have that second recurrence, you just are a, you're at greater than 50% chance of just being in the cycle of recurring and recurring. And people, it really affects their quality of life. Um, They have stool continence issues. They become socially isolated. The frequent visits to clinics and hospitals start to really eat into their quality of life, nutrition starts to go downhill, it's costly, and it really can be debilitating. So that that cycle of recurrence is what really has gotten people interested in fecal transplantation early on based on case reports of, of this and sort of with the rationale that, okay, we think that C. diff affects the gut by basically finding a colon that's been denuded of its normal flora due to antibiotics or chemotherapy or random chance, um, but historically mostly from antibiotics. And then this organism sets up shop and starts sort of basically finds a good niche to live. And the thought was that, well, if we could accelerate the repopulation of a normal gut flora, maybe that would prevent C. diff from having a chance to populate that ecologic niche. And 
the thinking is pretty simple. Like, well, what's the fastest way to get to normal school flora? How about let's put in a, a inoculum of normal school flora and see if it takes off. That's great. Recently, I've been reading about routes of administration. Um, could you talk about routes of administration and where do, where do we stand in 2019? Sure. So, Pretty much any method of getting to the colon that can be thought of has been tried and has been studied and compared, although the studies that compare the various routes are small. And so when we say that we don't know any any superior way of doing it, that should be taken with a caveat that these are not large studies that can really detect small differences. That said, you know the ways that have been tried have been colonoscopy, which has the benefit of being able to evaluate the colon while you're in there to see is there perhaps something else going on other than C. diff, like lymphocytic colitis or some other colonic pathology and not C. diff. Um, and you can deliver the fecal transplant to the entire colon. There's enema, which is far less invasive and doesn't need the, the interventionalist and the fee associated with the colonoscopy. There's nasal gastric or nasal jejunal tube placement, which, again, needs the placement of the tube and some expertise to do that. Not the most fun for anyone who's had one of those tubes. And now there are capsules, typically capsules that are designed to, you know, pass through the stomach, release in the small intestine and deliver the contents um, down to the distal small intestine colon, whether either an acid resistant capsule or double encapsulation. That has the appeal of, you know, really not needing an interventionalist. It has a potential more mass market appeal. And obviously it's the sort of least invasive, you know, between an NG tube, a colonoscopy and an enema or some pills, most people would opt for the pills. So when all those methods have been tried, um, and compared, they all have similar success rates. Can't say that they are identical based on the, the studies that are there, really to be explored. And then there's also the fresh versus frozen. So fresh donor stool versus frozen stool also has not seemed to show in any real, real difference. Let's go to the study. Um, and just to remind people, the title of the study is Incidence of Bloodstream Infections, Length of Hospital Stay, and Survival in patients with recurrent Clostridioides difficile infection treated with fecal microbiota transplantation or antibiotics. It's a prospective cohort study. Could you explain that? It's a long title, and it has, of course, the new name of, of C. difficile. It's now not Clostridium, but Clostridioides, which I can't explain. The microbiologist can get into that. So a prospective cohort, it is basically taking a group of patients um, deciding, you know, ahead of time that we're going to study this going forward. This is not randomized. They didn't, they didn't randomly assign fecal transplantation versus standard antibiotic therapy. So, you know, ideally you would have that to get rid of all the, the unknown confounders between the groups. And if you have a large enough study, randomization should take care of that. You know, there are reasons that's, that one group got the fecal transplant and the other group got the, the standard antibiotic therapy. And we'll get into that. But the strength of it is that they decided ahead of time, what are we going to do? What are we going to measure? This was not sort of looking back at a cohort of patients who had had this procedure done and looking for outcomes that were available in the chart. Um, they said, we're going to look at these things, and thus we're going to have complete ascertainment of these things. You're not reliant on someone recording it in the chart or having, or having recall bias of someone saying, yeah, I think I was a little bit better. They went forward with this um, with a fairly well-defined protocol, um, but not randomized, which they tried to address later on. They tried to adjust for the lack of randomization by something called a propensity score uh, matching. Uh, can you explain that? And does that help us get around the fact that they couldn't do a randomized control trial? 
I can try to explain it. And I, you know, this is where if you really want to explain it, you need a biostatistician to come here. And, and I think the, the downside is that, you know, I can explain it, I think, in clinical terms. A biostatistician could probably explain it in more technically accurate terms, but maybe not everyone would understand them. And please, no hate mail from the biostatisticians. Um, so I've, I have one study where I have used a propensity score, and I had to have it explained to me by my, my biostats people multiple times. What you're looking for is basically you're trying to measure from the various characteristics that you have. Um, you're trying to take all of the characteristics that you measure, the baseline, you know, age, demographics, disease severity, pre-existing conditions, and trying to assign a single score that, get, that, that assesses the odds of getting the treatment that you're interested in, in this case, fecal transplant. So you basically assign a number from zero to one, where one is 100% likelihood that people with these characteristics always end up at fecal transplant and zero, as they never do. And what you're trying to do is to take all of the confounders that you have because you're not randomized and try to balance those out. And in theory, you can take observational data where you have not randomized and try to balance out some of those confounders, including even the unmeasured confounders, which hopefully will travel with the measured ones um, and make it closer to a randomized study. Now, the clinical trialists will say that, look, if you, if you want to get randomized trial data, you have to do a randomized trial, that this, is, this will you know, smooth out some of the edges, but will never quite get you to that level of data. But it is a level of controlling for confounding variables, both measured and unmeasured, that is closer to what you'll get from an RCT, but not quite there. That's my poor man's explanation. Yeah, and I'm going to just go ahead and, and uh, see if you agree with my restating uh, of this. We take each patient who got fecal transplant, and we looked at the factors and say, what's the probability amongst all patients that they would have gotten a fecal transplant. And then we find people who, who got antibiotics who have the same probability of getting a fecal transplant. And so we sort of match them in a way so that we have people who seem to have the same underlying characteristics, but for some reason one got antibiotics and the other got fecal transplant. Correct. You, get, you assign them a score via your, the factors that you plug in, and then you say, okay, well, in the people who didn't get fecal transplant, let's find someone with the closest score that we can, and that will be this, this patient's match. So these people will have the same propensity score, but one got the transplant, one did not. We don't know why, um, but from the factors that we measured, they seem to be similar. And there are a number of studies in the literature that have used this technique, and there are times you just can't do a randomized controlled trial. And so this is the next best thing, uh, at least in my opinion. It is as close as you can get. I mean, I, you know, there are randomized trials going on in this. We can get to that later. I mean, we're actually conducting one within the VA system on this. So, I mean, you can do a randomized trial on this, but this is, this is really helpful data to have out there. So, and, and you mentioned the ver most of the variables that they use to stratify people, which are very reasonable when you think about uh, the outcome measures that we're worried about. As I remember, they, they looked at three outcome measurements. The first was bloodstream infections. I didn't understand that, and since you're an infectious disease expert, I'm going to get you to explain it to me. Well, I'm going to do my best to explain that. When I saw this study, I had two immediate reactions. My first one was, oh, great, because this summer, your listeners may remember, there was in June, July, there was a flurry of activity, and the FDA announced that they were putting a hold on fecal transplant studies because there was the first reported death from a fecal transplant due to a bloodstream infection from a resistant bacteria that was 
clearly documented as having coming from the donor, ended up in the immune suppressed recipient, and they died of this ESBL produce, uh, producing E. coli. So this was the first bloodstream infection that resulted in death after fecal transplant. So when we saw this study showing that, you know, not to jump to the conclusions, but that, it, you know, that the risks of bloodstream infection seemed less with fecal transplant than versus oral therapy, that was reassuring. The caveat on that is that I was surprised because I just do not see a whole lot of people with bloodstream infections after C. diff, whether or not they're treated with antibiotics or fecal transplants. And I went to my colleagues and I said, am I, am I just having a selective memory? Do you guys think of this as something that we should watch for post-C. diff infection? And everyone shrugged and said no. And so I dove into the literature a little bit. And I think the biggest study of, of patients with C. diff, including re recurrent C. diff, is a trial of an, a monoclonal antibody in the New England Journal, um, Bezlatoximab. And they had a, about a 2,500 patient trial, um, including 1,000 with recurrent C. diff. And their rate of bloodstream infection was about 0.5%. So this surprised me a little bit in that this group seems to have a higher rate of bloodstream infections than I'm used to seeing and that what I'm used to seeing in the studies. So this was slightly unique in that respect. I'd be a little curious as to, you know, are their patients different in some way from the C. diff patients that I'm used to? But it was a, it was a higher rate of bloodstream infections than I think most of us are used to seeing after C. difficile. That really helps me a lot because I, I haven't remembered seeing that. And I certainly don't see as many patients as you do with C. diff. And most of the patients I see is the first occurrence and most of them do really well. The next two are really make a lot of sense. The length of hospital stay and mortality at 90 days. Could you just say a word or two about those outcome measures? Sure. I mean, length of hospital stay is of interest because it addresses sort of the so the patient burden addresses the burden of the healthcare system. Economic costs are, of course, heavily tracking with length of hospital stays, since hospital stays are quite expensive. It's also nice that when you're doing a study, having a continuous variable, it is easy to find differences versus a categorical variable, a yes-no. So that's that's something that is useful for when people are trying to find differences. And then obviously mortality, I mean, especially when you're doing a a trial that is not blinded and you worry about outcome assessment that, well, are people being kept in the hospital longer because they want to, they're, they're nervous about what happened after their fecal transplant, or maybe they're getting sent out of the hospital earlier because they say, oh, you got the fecal transplant, you're good. Anytime you have a non-blinded study, you like a hard endpoint and there's nothing harder than mortality. So that's always a, a good hard endpoint in a non-blinded study. Is the length of hospitalization a proxy for the speed of recovery from C. diff? You know, it's really hard to say because there's just so much that goes into what keeps you in a hospital. Um, it could indeed be a proxy on how, you know, whether or not you are back to normal nutrition um, and, and your gut working better so that you start the recovery process and are able to function on your own and get out of the hospital. It could also just be a, a proxy of complexity. And it may be that the patients who are more complex either were more likely to get fecal transplants or perhaps they were so complex that they were leery of giving it to them. I just don't know their, you know, the individual practice patterns of this group. Um, I know they're a group that certainly publishes a lot in the C. diff world. They're well experienced in this and fecal transplant, but it really sort of comes down to is, is the fecal transplant something you reach for for your sickest patients or do you reach for it in patients who you think, you know what, they're otherwise, they're otherwise fairly robust, we can do this. And that really comes down to sort of individual practice style. Well, let's go through the results, and they very kindly showed us the results with and without propensity matching. So 
will do before propensity matching, and that means they just took all comers, and there probably are differences in the patients who got antibiotics and the patients who got fecal transplant. And then we'll go to the after-propensity score where we should decrease any biases of patients who would have gotten antibiotics rather than fecal transplant for reasons we don't know. So let's go first to the uh, primary outcome and the secondary outcomes for the original cohort. And let's just, I have it in front of me, 109 received fecal transplant and 181 received antibiotics. Yep. And so the, the primary outcome of bloodstream infection, and again, this was, I think, within 90 days, which is a fairly standard sort of three-month period afterwards, it seemed like a pretty clear-cut, um, you know, five patients, and given that it's, all, it's roughly 100, so 5% of those who were treated with FMT ended up with the bloodstream infection uh, versus 22% or 40 cases of 181 in the antibiotic group. So 5 versus 22%, the percentage difference was 16%, I think the, the decimals fall out there because otherwise that looks like it is more 17%, but a definite difference with the confidence interval that definitely, you know, was, did not cross zero. So it seemed to be, it was statistically significant, which is, I think most of us could look at that and see that's a dramatic enough difference that would be, that would stand the statistical test. And then looking at, they, they looked at it in polymicrobial, bacterial, fungal, in all cases, it was more common um, in the group treated with antibiotics. Uh, and I'm recalling a patient I had who had recurrence, who actually died of uh, sepsis. I believe this, although I, the numbers seem strikingly high. Okay, then uh, for the original cohort, uh, the length of uh, hospitalization, I'll read off for you, was 13 days versus 29 days, which is both statistically and clinically significant. Yes, indeed. I think anyone would say being in the hospital two weeks shorter is a good thing. Okay, and then uh, being alive after 90 days. Um, that one also, you know, highly, you know, highly significant, 92% alive versus 61% alive. One does have to wonder about selection, and, and here's where I think it's worth the looking into the, the table one for the original cohort. The big thing that I noticed from the, the differences between the groups and the original cohort is that the FMT group had a lot of people who were in the third, fourth, and greater than fifth recurrences of C. diff, whereas in the group tree with antibiotics, there were a very small number that had three recurrences, but no one with four or five recurrences, So, which interestingly, it would seem to me that that's a, the fecal transplant group has, you know, people who are recurring and recurring and recurring, which seems sicker, but on the other hand, they've also survived this long with C. diff to recur that often, so they've, they've sort of had the stress test of having this infection three, four times already and made it to still be in the study. And then after propensity score matching, the, the results are fairly similar, and maybe you could go over those real quickly. Sure. And again, just to refresh, so that's so now, now in after propensity score, there's this match pair. So for every patient treated with FMT, you have a roughly matched person treated with antibiotics, so 57 in each group. And the bloodstream infection was 4% versus 26%, which um, was statistically significant. This is where they actually had the, the 95% confidence interval. And then similarly with the secondary outcomes, length of hospitalization, relatively unchanged, 13 versus 28 instead of 29 or 30 days. And then in the alive after 90 days um, was 89% versus 58%. So in the 89% alive in the fecal transplant group and the 58% in the treated with antibiotics. 
It really sounds like fecal transplants are magic compared to antibiotics. I know you've talked to colleagues probably around the country about this study. For the people who are really interested in uh, C. diff and fecal transplant, what do you make of this study today and what more data do we need? The fecal transplant world is interesting right now. There's a fair amount of controversy. The FDA just had a conference inviting comments from industry, patient advocate groups, and researchers. And I watched the the webcast version of it, and there really were two themes emerging. One theme was from people who said the evidence is overwhelming that that fecal transplant does well, that it should be, there should be no restrictions on its use, the FDA should approve it, and it should just go mainstream, the sooner the better. And the counter argument was that the data for FMT is largely from case series, prospective studies, non-randomized studies, the type of data that were this a pharmaceutical company coming with a molecular compound that had the same level of data the FDA would never approve it and that it needs more study and that we should not make it widely available because then studies will be much more difficult to do when patients can just go get it on the open market. And so there is this conundrum in the field where I think people are very intrigued by the promise of fecal transplant. It seems to have a dramatic effect in terms of reducing the rates of recurrence. But there's been a little bit of caution in that the the first initial trials that were randomized were small, and the control group had startlingly low success rates, so people were a little concerned about that. And then since then, there's been a couple of studies that were randomized trials, one in annals, um, where people received either their own stools transplanted in, they would you know have they had to go have a bowel movement, and they would either get um, someone else's stools returned or their own. And overall, the study was successful in terms of showing that FMT was better in terms of recurrence. But in one of the two sites, the people did just as well with their own stool instilled back in than they did with donor stool, which led to some, you know, if if it's a truly biologic effect, there should not be a site difference um, in the study. And then there was another study in Canada that was actually stopped at one of their interim analyses for futility, which again, if you have a product that, sh- that is doing so well, you shouldn't be stopping it for fut- futility, which would say that there's just as long as you do the study, you're not going to find a difference. So I think the jury is still out. People are excited about the possibility of this. I work at the VA system and we have, you know, we have an elderly population that's heavily exposed to antibiotics. We at this point do not routinely offer this. Individual VAs may have relationships with academic centers or community providers that offer FMT. We're actually conducting a large study. So the VA has a a program, the Cooperative Studies Program, um, or CSP, and we're recruiting veterans nationally to a trial of FMT capsules versus placebo capsules. So if any of your listeners are physicians in the VA system and they have folks with recurrency diff, they could certainly go to the Cooperative Studies Program website and look for FMT or CSP 2004, and they would see details of that. It's also on clinicaltrials.gov. So there is ongoing research going on here. I think this article was timely given the nervousness that everyone had this summer after the first reported death from a fecal transplant from a bloodstream infection. So the fact that this seems safer than antibiotic treatment is reassuring in that context. I think this has been great, and I think you framed it really nicely. This article does uh, give us some encouragement about the safety of fecal transplant. At least it doesn't cause more bloodstream infections. 
certainly the data also tell us that people who have recurrent C. diff have a major danger of complications uh, compared to people who uh, get better without a recurrence. I guess at each individual institution, we have to develop our own strategy. I don't think the guidelines will change because of this. Do you? I don't. I mean, currently, both the IDSA guidelines and the European version of, of them, the ECMID guidelines, their Society for Clinical Microbiology and ID, um, mention fecal transplant as sort of something to consider in the when you're approaching the second recurrence. The American gastroenterology guidelines suggest fecal transplant even for the first recurrence. So no, I don't think this will move. I, I think to, to move the where the recommendation stands will probably take more robust data than this, but it certainly will not be a red flag for people to stop using fecal transplants. Um, but I do think that the current FDA guidance, which is that you, if you're going to do it for a study, it has to be done under an IND, investigational new drug application, and informed consent has to be obtained. And even if you're doing it just in routine clinical practice, not for a study, they still want you to obtain informed consent and explain that this is still an, largely an experimental process. I think that's a wise precaution. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and I hope that this helps uh, my colleagues. I happen to work uh, at uh, the VA, and I, th I think that you've framed this article, which I think is extremely important for us to understand where this field is going. So thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion of the dilemma of how to treat patients who have a recurrence after antibiotic treatment with C. difficile. This data, while not a randomized controlled trial, certainly presents some evidence that the outcomes are better with fecal microbiota transplantation than with a second round of antibiotics. However, there's some concerns with this article, as Dr. Draconia pointed out. There are ongoing randomized controlled trials trying to help us solve this dilemma. This article gives us some information that we might use along with our consultants to make a decision about how to treat recurrent C. diff. I hope this has better framed the issues involved in this decision-making and that it will help you uh, in your care of such patients. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.